Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Hey, Jason, you want to tell our audience a little bit about our podcast guest today? Yeah, our guest was one of our colleagues. Tom Jury is the head of the North America Field Testing Organization, which is part of Bayer. In his role, he's responsible for leading a team that has numerous sites spread across the United States, and they grow millions of plots every year to develop the industry-leading varieties and hybrids that are coming onto the market each year. Plant breeding has come a long way uh, in not very many years. So I think you mentioned, Jason, a decade ago, plant breeding looked a lot different than it does today. Uh, We're using technology now to really change the whole breeding process. Tom goes into breeding 3.0, which is a a fascinating conversation, and then he even hints at maybe breeding 4.0 and some of those future technologies that we're going to use to create new products. Yeah, and it's it's an exciting time, I think, also, Preston. We're embarked upon our careers now, but if I were coming out of college as a student, as we talked about in the podcast, it's an exciting time because there's a real opportunity to combine a couple of your passions and interests and really tailor a career to what you're really interested in. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the conversation with Tom. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. To uh, kick things off, would you tell us a little bit about your background, your education, and then maybe a little bit about your career history and current role? Yeah, sure. So background-wise, I'm originally from um, northeastern Wisconsin, and then I went to school in the Madison area, and then once I was near completed with my undergraduate degree, I got a job with a company called Agrocetus, and, and they did all the, a lot of the initial transformations for what was uh, Monsanto at the time. And then we were, we were incorporated uh, into, the, into the Monsanto company and, and, and quickly realized, you know, Monsanto did a good job at establishing breeding and breeders and biotechnology, but they didn't really have anyone who could span both organizations. So I was given the opportunity to go back to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin at the time and kind of work on being a bridge of that gap. And, and um, you know, always grateful of that opportunity in my career development. And, and, and shortly after, I took on a few various biotech product projects and realized, oh, well, some of these are, are quite good. In, in soybeans specifically, most people would be uh, familiar with Roundup Ready 2 uh, and Dicamba. So as we got those closer to transitioning from biotech into breeding programs, I was, I was given the opportunity to lead a breeding station in Janesville, Wisconsin. And I, and I did that for, for a period of time. And, and we had a lot of good success there. And um, really, you know, as I reflected on that, I'd like to think it was because I was an amazing breeder, but it wasn't. It was it was more about, you know, we really looked at how we did uh, the field trials and the testing. And I really found kind of a, an interest or passion in, in being able to do good, high quality field testing as a step in the, in the breeding process. So um, a few years later, I, I still remained as a breeder and I moved into Huxley, Iowa and did what was known or what is known as a commercial development breeding, kind of the back into the pipeline and, and, and seeing traits through from, from the breeding process and into the commercial org. But around that time, an opportunity came up to, to work directly in, in running uh, a large portion of our field testing group. So at that time, I moved to, moved to St. Louis here and, and since I have been given the opportunity to, to lead the entire field testing group for our 
our breeding and biotech organization across North America. So, so what we do today is, is really, we have remote sites spanning all the way from um, Saskatoon, Canada, down to, to Tifton, Georgia. And we have employees at it and, and we run the small plot research for, like I said, the breeding and biotech organizations. And we specialize in making sure we have the highest quality data sets, but also we're launching a lot of the new innovations when it comes to uh, planter and combine technology, but also uh, UAVs and how we really collect traits at higher resolution and gain new insights like we've never been able to before. That's an interesting story, Tom. And I, I'm always struck when we're talking to people and I would imagine that, you know, maybe you had a grand plan to end up, you know, where you are today. And obviously your career is not over, but, you know, you started off working in the lab and then you became a breeder and now you're overseeing testing. That's kind of three sort of distinct things. And you probably didn't necessarily have an idea back when you were an undergrad of where your career was going to take you. No, like I reflect on, well, first of all, I look at people who come out as undergrads today and the amount of, uh, the amount of definition they have around what they do is so impressive to me because that was definitely not me. Um, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll always be a breeder and have a passion for breeding. And, you know, I think once you become a breeder and you get to, to do all these exciting things like running a program and working on testing and working on population genetics and working on traits, I think we all kind of settle into various corners. You can't be the expert at all of them. And I think, a subset of breeders are population geneticists. A subset of breeders are, are people who like doing trait discovery and trait launches. And then a subset of, of breeders really think passionately about uh, genotype by environment and how you measure it and how you sample it properly and do well there. So I guess, you know, through that whole journey, I knew early on I was interested in, in plant sciences. Getting my first role helped me realize what opportunities existed out there kind of develop that as, as best we can. And then, and then really found what I think is, is a nice, uh, nice niche. Today, we'd like to talk about the topic of breeding 3.0 and the current state of breeding and how far it's come. And we don't want to go, we want to set the stage just a little bit on what plant breeding used to look like, just so we have a, a baseline. Um, but we would refer the listeners back to our series that uh, we did earlier on plant breeding where we went pretty in depth if they if they went a little bit deeper dive. But Tom, could you tell us a little bit about how plant breeding kind of started if we think back to the earliest times of agriculture? Right. So plant breeding's always been, you know, about taking what you see as high performing individuals or or lines, for lack of a better word, that have a particular set of characteristics that you want to uh, improve across the germplasm pool or, you know, simply take your most elite stuff and, and combine it and see if you can always improve it. And, and over time, you, you see these improvements in yield and or trade availability and many other things. But that's what we kind of consider genetic gain. And, and, and objectively, that's not important as a scientific exercise. It's important to our customers. If we're not constantly improving the performance of our germplasm to our customers, our customers are, are unable to, to realize the value that uh, you know, agriculture can, can, can bring to them just like any, any business. And, and, and if you're not constantly changing the genetic makeup of, of your hybrids or, or varieties, 
you know, over time, they can break down, they can, they can become subject to various uh, diseases or pests that will actually take yield away from, from an existing line. So, you know, from a standpoint of where we want to be as a breeding organization is we always want to be improving our germplasm for our customers because our customers are the ones who really, um, really get to, it's their livelihoods, right? This is what they do. This is how they make a living. And, and we want to be able to, to provide them with the best solutions that they can have. Now, historically, it was, it was a lot of, you make crosses, we'll call them A by B, where A is one parent and B is the other parent. And you kind of get a, a, a bunch of recombinations out of that. And, and then you go in and you select the best performing individuals. And, and historically, some of that, you know, had been highly, um, highly visual in context, but in, at the end of the day, most of it was about sampling as many environments as you can, um, make sure those environments are highly reproducible, give you reproducible results, and pick your highest yielding entries and, and, and advance them. And then once you know your highest yielding stuff, you kind of recirculate the uh, uh, similar same exercise. It's interesting that you, you talked about customers because obviously, you know, in a, in a large company like Bayer, it's about providing that for the customers. But in the early stages of plant breeding, the customer would have been the farmer himself or herself that would have made those selections and, and would have been improving their own things. But today, it's really not feasible uh, the way agriculture is today for, for people to improve things on their own. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, you could even go back further, like you said, and, and before we were breeding as a, uh, an industry was making crosses, some of it was just always selecting within lines and making improvements. And you're exactly right. You know, that was something uh, customers did and evolved uh, their own populations uh, over time. Now, once we are in this world of, of making targeted crosses, it definitely would bring a substantial amount of, of challenge for any customer to have their own, you know, breeding programs or breeding lines and the, the scale at which you'd have to do it to, to really, you know, stay up to date would, would, would be limited. But Tom, as we think about those earliest selections that were being made, you know, you referenced it was, it was based on visual things that they could see, but obviously what was driving those visual things was the genetics behind it. So it took a few years, obviously, but at, at some point, scientists started to understand what the genetic basis was for those traits. And can, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the DNA and the, and the genetic makeup of a plant versus what we see on the outside? Sure. Well, so the DNA is the genetic code that's responsible for the expression of every phenotype. And, and as, you know, we progress through time, you know, we're able to measure how often we see a phenotype and then kind of backtrack that into what, what are the underlying genetics that are responsible for it. And then, you know, with the uh, discovery of molecular markers, we're actually able to start pinpointing exactly where certain genes of value were in the genome because we could associate that phenotype, what it looked like, with the genotype, with what is the gene that's driving the inheritance of that particular trait. And that was a really powerful tool because once we were able to do that, we're able to unlock the ability to physically sample a genome, go in and select specifically on 
the genotype and expect all the individuals after it to carry that phenotype too. So really powerful tool, really important in this evolution of, you know, selection from, from being a more observational component into selection being an intent driven component to, to where we're going today with being able to understand that the genotype of the whole genome and being able to associate that back once we, once we can take measured phenotypes that may not be quite as observational. So when we talk about using those markers, I mean, essentially, essentially we're able to make a selection based on, even at, even at the stage of the seed before the plant is even grown, we're able to predict and know uh, certain characteristics of those plants before they're, before they're ever grown out. Absolutely. So if you think of the traditional context of breeding, you might have tested hundreds of thousands of individuals in the early stages. To sample that many individuals, you had to go at very few locations because you would run out of resources. And then as you reduce the number of individuals in the various stages of your testing, you grow the number of locations with which you want to test them at. So you go to fewer individuals, but you start getting to, to higher resolution. What being able to understand the genetic makeup of the entire genome relative to its performance and using that to be able to predict its performance. In those earlier stages, we can actually simulate a yield trial in a lab for just those very early stages, right? Because when we were at a low number of locations, we actually had a very, you know, a, a significant amount of, of error associated with that type of testing. So having that genomic information allows us to run that testing stage where there's thousands of individuals much more efficiently by uh, predicting their performance based on their marker marker genotypes. So once we once we take that and make apply selections earlier in the process, that frees up a bunch of resources for us to get higher resolution for the rest of the stages through our breeding process. So we can actually sample more environments, uh, put our put our plots in more locations that are exactly what our customers experience, and be able to better replicate the overall, what we'll consider the, you know, the, the environment for a particular RM or region. Awesome, Tom. So you've already kind of mentioned a few, you know, the predictive nature of, of current plant breeding. I was wondering if you could describe breeding 3.0 and maybe some of the factors that have enabled this uh, movement into breeding 3.0. Yeah, so breeding 3.0, you know, has a couple of pieces within its foundation that I'll hit on. One is the one we just talked about that the deeper understanding of genomics, having a marker coverage across an entire genome and being able to, to use that information to make selections prior to a yield trial. That, that, that's what we'll call the, the GWS component. Um, within my area of focus, which is, is field testing, we also shifted quite a bit into automation. Um, I think everybody who's listening to this probably knows there's many advancements with precision in regards to how we plant, manage our crops and, and, and combine them. We invested heavily into a planting technology that basically enables us to know where every single seed is put in the ground, associate that to a GPS coordinate. That sounds really simple, right? What, what do you get from that? Well, if you think of the data you collect in a field, if you know exactly where every plot is, you can start making associations that are, that are more than just you know, the yield for a county or a state, you can start to get higher resolution and start thinking about things like soil types, start thinking about environmental conditions that were presented there, and also allows you to kind of 
um, layer that data on over the various years of testing to, to get a deeper understanding of your germplasm. Now, in addition, being able to tie everything we do to an individual coordinate in the field that also enables us to, to take advantage of some newer technologies. Um, we talked about how uh, earlier in the breeding process, a lot of things are visual. It, obviously, you can go and you can rate a stand for vigor or you can rate it for a certain disease. But every time you're doing that in a visual environment, you have a human being going out there. And we all know if I went out and rated something and then and a couple hours later, Jason came out and rated something, we might not come up with the same answer all the time. So by, be, by being able to have that coordinate, now we can start using geospatial uh, technologies such as UAVs or satellites, and we can start really measuring with, with high repeatability. You know, there's not this user to user uh, error interface where we can, we can rate things in a uniform context and be able to come up with an observation that, that should contain a lower error rate and also the number of observations we're able to take in any given flight or, or picture can, can grow as quickly as we grow the technology to do it. So that was a really very big key component to, uh, to unlocking you know, much more data, much more insight that we can get off of each individual plot in the field. It's really interesting to me anyway, Tom, when you talk about the current state of the technology and the automation and the remote sensing and all the things that, that you guys are doing. I started in soybean breeding barely a decade ago, a little over a decade ago. And at that point, we were still riding on the planters and we were still dumping packets of seed as we went through the field. And we were using cables, as you well remember, to trip the planter to make it plant a plot every 15 feet, which is basically what, 100-year-old technology where, uh, you know, they use the planters with the trip wires. That's basically what we were doing just a little over 10 years ago. And, and it's just mind-boggling uh, where things are today that you're describing. Yeah, I always, uh, I always tell my team, if I look at when I started, if you'd have told me, in three to five years, we would have a tractor that's driven off of auto steer and a GPS connection. I would have said, you're nuts, that's space age technology. <laughs> and then if you told me five years later, we're gonna have the ability to not only put a coordinate on every, every plot, but thoroughly understand where every seed fell and where we have gaps in that, I would have said, you're nuts. And then if you told me we were gonna collect information via UAV or satellite at scale the way we are today, I would have told you you're nuts again too. So we kind of use that story as a context for every time when we're framing up a new technology, there's a hundred reasons why it feels like this isn't going to work. And early on, it comes with some troubles and some pains, but over, over the period of time, it really is amazing to reflect on it because you don't have to reflect, you know, a hundred years to understand all these changes. You, really the last decade Stuff's moving at a lightning fast pace, and it's really exciting and kind of fun to watch. We're definitely going to ask towards the end here to get out your crystal ball and look into the future a little bit and predict some of those. You know, you're in a unique spot to see some of the things that are maybe coming down the road. But um, let's get a little definition around. You, you mentioned GWS or genome-wide selection. Can you tell us just a little bit about that process kind of at a high level? Uh, I can try. <laughs> so you take, because uh, it's not a simple to describe concept, but you take a, and develop a, a series of markers across the entire uh, genome for a crop. And when you run that against all the uh, individuals within a population, 
you can detect the variation within any given genomic region of what its, what its genotype is. And then you can look at the reference data sets, the years of experience we have of having grown genotyped material in the field. And you say, this combination of markers or this particular individual with these combinations of these genomic markers will give you a higher likelihood of success, which is higher yield or you know, higher yield plus the additional things we may add to the weighting of that equation to make, to make the right selection. And those other things would be like disease and you know, some of the things we talked about earlier. So it's really a way to take markers and kind of understand the whole genome and enrich your population of individuals so you're only field testing the things that give you the highest likelihood of success. It's very similar to, to prior versions of breeding where, you know, those early stages are really about as much about getting rid of the bad as they are advancing the good. And at a genomic level, you can detect some of that, what's going to be really good from what's going to be bad, just looking at the marker fingerprint and, and making those interpolations in a laboratory environment rather than at field scale. So essentially, you're sounds like you're selecting for or selecting away from certain undesirable things that you know about based on the genetics and the performance of the of the parents. Correct. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. I guess to kind of compare and contrast breeding 3.0 to previous breeding techniques. So what can we accomplish with breeding 3.0 that we couldn't accomplish with traditional breeding or even marker assisted breeding? And then maybe I guess we've been kind of high level talking about genome wide selection, but for the farmer sitting out there, I guess, what are some of the benefits that maybe they see as a result of this breeding 3.0 initiative? Yeah, the benefit to the grower. So like I mentioned, we're, we, we made a very specific target. We said, we want our testing environments across all RMs to as closely mimic the grower environments as we can. So we did a lot of environmental modeling. We compared it to where our customer sits and we make sure we build up a network that truly tests our germplasm in the environment with which they're likely to be exposed, right? Any given year environment isn't a, a static thing, but as long as we're testing for five, six years through the exact same environments that our growers are going to be on, we're enriching our ability to make, to make the right selections. And that always wasn't uh, as data-driven as it is today. And that's something we, we uh, evaluate on an annual basis to always make sure we're in the environment that our customer is. So that should, it should result in an increased likelihood of success. But the other thing to, to think through too is by doing that, it can also help us anticipate some of the grower challenges. If we're also in the same places that they are, we're also seeing the same challenges in our trials that, that they are too. So always be adding value to the, to the customer, enrich to experience the, the germplasm as they would experience it and be able to be ahead of any grower challenges. So emerging trends and, and things like that. We always want to be in the same area where those are at. So because it takes us, you know, a couple of years to move the populations to where they need to be. So we want to be in the same areas that they are. And, and, and I think, you know, we're really starting to see that that's going to bring so much value to our growers. The other piece is as we get better in automation and automated phenotype collection, we should be improving our overall understanding or characterization of our lines. You know, that can mean how we rate something in, in you know, a traditional seed guide format, 
how well we understand its disease and performance relative to environment. And then also just high-end characterization of knowing as we build those layers of data down, we should be able to get all the way back down to individual soil types, crop rotations, all those sorts of things. We can filter our data up in ways that'll, that'll make sense to our grower customer. One thing that's interesting that I, I mean, I think of data layers and multi-year data, multi-environment data, and just the fact that you may be collecting data now, Tom, that maybe in the future when our algorithms are more fully developed, and I'm sure companies like Bear are pouring tons of money into the algorithmic and more of the modeling, you know, the more tech side of, of breeding. But it, it's exciting to think about the future, you know, and our ability to maybe even mine this current data now to help with future breeding prospects. Yeah, I think you described it pretty good there. You know, one thing to think through is we've got a lot of data today and we're going to have even more data tomorrow. And more doesn't always mean better. I think we were growing the data set faster than we could keep up with the analytics to, to analyze it for a good period of time there. Now that those two worlds are starting to come together, where we do have the firepower, we do have the models that can learn and, and, and gather and gain new insights that maybe we're not even thinking of. So a lot of the challenge that it, it has existed for the last several years and, and and I think will always continue to be one of the biggest challenges to any technology company is to not just collect the data, but actually to have the firepower to store it, organize it, analyze it, and turn it back out into meaningful insights. That, that really is something that takes a whole lot of work. And again, thinking about the smart people of the world, we have a, a really sharp group of data scientists and they do an amazing job at, at figuring out ways to really handle that data. Tom, I, I mentioned earlier that I was gonna ask you to get out your crystal ball. So hopefully you dusted it off and, and pulled it out here. But um, is there a such thing as breeding 4.0? You know, is that coming? And what does that look like Obviously, we're not looking for any uh, intellectual property secrets or anything like that, but just kind of a prediction of, of where, where this is going. Sure. On the, on the breeding side, we talked a lot today about resolution. Having some of these capabilities gives us better resolution at the genomic level and, and then additionally at the, at the field level. So the next wave of what you'll hear us talk about is, is something called precision breeding. And in this mode... So, so everything we described prior is you make combinations and then try to sort to individuals via characterization. What works best east, what works best west, but you sample them in both environments and you kind of make sure you, you characterize where the best fit for a product is. And, and the concept of precision breeding is, well, we know enough genomically now, can we make crosses with the intent to design lines for, for where they'll be the best fit? And again, now, if we're talking about something only working in a particular region, we can design to that. We can make sure it has the things that germplasm needs in that region. We can be more efficient and only test it in those environments. And again, hopefully be able to drive better value to our customers because if we're not having to test it everywhere, that means we can test more things specifically where we think, uh, where we think that, that that right fit is gonna be. So that, that's really a, a big trend in the industry now. So we've gotten through the characterization component. It's time to start designing towards specific 
concepts that uh, uh, our, uh, our customer could experience in any given year. So that's on the breeding side. On the, uh, on the phenotyping side or uh, on the side that I, I'm more closely aligned with, you know, we've spent a lot of time now really figuring out ways to increase accuracy on, on these observational traits. But we're kind of approaching it from the context of these are traditionally the things we measure. So let's just let's just improve the accuracy of what, which what we're measuring. But in reality, there's a lot of drivers of yield. You think of any given field that, that a, a farmer customer has, and you might see a, a 50 bushel swing within that field. And we're not necessarily always going to pick that up with just making the same series of observations. So being able to really dial in on the high resolution phenotyping, start using some sensors that maybe we've never explored before, and also be able to take that in addition to, to, to all the bits of data we've collected, consume them, and start to figure out the trends for the drivers of, of yield variation. So really thinking through not just what we always did, but what can we layer on top of that and how do we bring that whole data set together to, to better predict what our germplasm is going to do in any given grower's field? There's always room for a disruption in those technologies. That's a, your, your group's job, your, your team's job to kind of figure out some of these questions. But um, it sounds like we're moving in the right direction. And I think of an example here, you know, a few years ago, tar spot started to become a big problem in corn, at least at least for one year it showed up as a major problem and, it, and it's been showing up every year since in, in smaller, uh, with smaller impact maybe. But if we were able to be more focused on producing products for those environments, you know, ahead of time, uh, there's a possibility that, you know, a product could have been developed by the time that became a problem or kind of concurrently with it becoming a problem. And so I you know, it's kind of exciting to think about where the future could be. And, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, that sounds like a pipe dream at this point. But if somebody has said five years ago, things were going to be going, doing today, people would have said you were crazy. Exactly. Yep. That, that goes to our ability to be in those areas. And now in the future state to be able to be in those areas with the material that, that belongs to be tested there. And I actually missed one component too of what the future is going to kind of hold. Um, and I think this is a collaboration with, with the likes of your organization too, is, is this whole interface of tailored solutions. Um, some of it's simple, it's chemistry. And, and, you know, we have other organizations that make sure the chemistry is the best in the world and, and they advance it. But some of these things could interact with germplasm. So how we kind of work together to make sure we're learning as much as we can so we're not giving material to another organization with a blank slate. So we can kind of understand, again, how our genetics interact with the environment and the treatments available to, to again, make sure that the customer can secure their yield as much as possible. So Tom, I'm curious, do you have any advice for students that are maybe interested in getting involved in plant breeding? You're talking about a lot of technolo technological changes. Do you think, you know, we're moving more to technology? Do you think it's wise to get heavily invested in that? Do you think, you know, students should still have a, have a foot in the door of, you know, basic agronomics, things like that? Any words of wisdom? Yeah, well, so as we think through <clears throat> the future state, there's always going to be a role for breeders. There's always a role for people are going to continue. So even if you had an algorithm that could do everything you wanted it to do. You need some 
someone needs to interact with it. Someone needs to, to make sure, you know, it stays on track and make sure we're feeding it the right information to do what we need it to do. So there's always going to be a need for people who understand, you know, genotype by environment, population genetics and, and traditional selection requirements. That's always going to be there. But to a, to a student, what I would say is don't feel like that's your only path into this field. Um, the amount of value for people who understand agronomy and data science is, is immense. Um, the amount of value of people who can really get their heads around geospatial imagery, automated data capture, that's huge. My organization's starting to look at more people with computer science, engineering. It's not limited to the traditional agronomy students. But with that said, we still do hire a lot of traditional agronomy students. We need people who understand plot research, understand the agricultural system, and, and can bring value to it that way too. So my when we when we speak to universities and things like that, it's like because it's called breeding, don't feel limited to your only venue to participating at high levels is to be a breeder. Breeders are still immensely valuable, but there's, a, there's other sections of the organization. You know, everyone we hire has, has a degree, so they can do science. Let's go out there and do science. And, and those aspects we just talked through, engineering, computer science, data science, those are all super valuable positions to our organization. It's really an exciting time to be in agriculture, at least from my perspective, because as you mentioned, somebody that's really, uh, really, really their first love is agronomy, um, but yet enjoys dabbling in, you know, maybe maybe drone or new technology or some other aspect. It seems like there's a place for almost everyone because all those things kind of have to come together. And so it's really exciting time, I think, for students coming out of college where they can kind of combine uh, their, their first love and, and a real strong interest that they have. Absolutely. And, and you can pretty much match a passion with a, with a niche out there somewhere. Great. Well, Tom, I think that's a great place to wrap up for this conversation. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to have this discussion with us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.